0: Romans 3 verse 1, Paul says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man, in other words, with human logic, Paul's saying. Certainly not, for how then will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously ported, as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And Father, we ask as we. Study this next section of scripture that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding of every thought and intent and purpose behind why you spoke these things. And Lord, we pray that your same spirit who once inspired them initially would be our teacher, our interpreter, our instructor this morning, presently right here in this place. We thank you that you're with us, Lord. We just want to sit at your feet now. We ask that you would teach us through your Spirit's ministry, and that you would each and every one of us help us to hear what it is you would want to say to us personally. And we ask that expectantly, believing you will, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed how one of the most difficult things for any person to do is to admit that they're wrong? You know, there is just something within our human nature that it grates against everything within our being and we just struggle when it comes to those times when we need to accept our guilt for our own mistakes or to actually admit our failures or the errors that we have committed. And there's just something within us that just... It just fights against it with all of our being in those occasions or those moments. And whether it's when you were a child or you're younger and your parent is correcting you and you, there's that whole struggle to want to accept the fact that you're actually wrong or even as adults as well, we still, you know, to this day, there's a stubbornness within our spirit. We don't like to admit the reality that we're wrong at times in our lives. It's just, it's just a wrestling for us because of the condition of our natural human nature. That truth, however, becomes extremely dangerous to any person, especially as it pertains to spiritual life. It is an extremely dangerous thing to struggle with admitting our guilt and facing our error and sins as it pertains to spiritual life. It is crucial to see. It is crucial to sense and to admit and to accept our sinfulness as a human being, as well as the sin that we all commit against God. And this passage in front of us this morning, the purpose of it is really to help us face our own guilt. It's to help us embrace the reality that like all of the world, every person on this planet We are guilty people, that we are mistake-ridden, and that we all fail in our lives. And really, Paul, in these first three chapters, as we've been looking at, has been speaking, as we said, with an intended strategy. Paul's purposely trying to drive home a point, as the Spirit of God is leading him to pen this letter uh, in the book of Romans, that humanity is guilty of sin against God. And he's gone to great lengths. In some ways, you're saying, yes, I can't wait until he's done. In the past few weeks, all we have talked about is the reality of our sinfulness, of our depravity, but you see, that is absolutely crucial and necessary, and both Paul himself, because of his own experience, as well as God, understands that we need to recognize that. We need to come to grips with the reality of our sinfulness before God, that we do deserve judgment that it is righteous for us to experience the wrath of God and that therefore we all need salvation. Every one of us that we need Jesus's forgiveness. We need his deliverance from the penalty and punishment that our sin deserves. And whether it is a, a, a immoral person or, or an ir, irreligious person or whether it is a very righteous person who has strong moral convictions and uh, and maybe has a very religious lifestyle that they've lived through, that equally we all still miss the mark. We all still fall short and we need Jesus's forgiveness. We saw just last time as we were finishing chapter two. Remember, Paul there was confronting the religious Jew and he was confronting them because of a false security that they had spiritually. And Paul understood this because he was once a very religious Jew. Paul wasn't living in chapter one. Paul was living the struggle of chapter 2, the religious law-keeping Jew who followed the rituals and the observances that God gave to the Jews. And and Paul, like those, had a strong familiarity with the system of religion and he was observing those things. But Paul knew there was a false security that comes many times with a religious lifestyle of putting confidence in rites and rituals. Particularly the Jew was putting their confidence in the ritual of circumcision. And their head knowledge of the things of God and believing that somehow observing rituals and ordinances, particularly the rite of circumcision, that doing those things alone somehow made them right with God. Irregardless of how they actually still lived in their personal lives, as long as they kept the observances, didn't matter kind of what went on in the rest of their life or in their heart or all week long. Hey, we keep the observances, We pay our dues, we follow the checklist of what it means to be religious, and Paul was challenging that error of self-deception. Remember he said there in chapter 2, verse 25, if you'll glance back with me, Paul said, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. In other words, if if you're living to honor God, then surah. An ordinance can have value if you're in right relationship with God, but if you're a breaker of the law, he says, then your circumcision has become like uncircumcision. Look down in verse 28 and 29. This was how he concluded. He said, for he is not a Jew who is one inwardly, or excuse me, outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart beyond just the outward observance. He says, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, Paul was trying to say, "Look, religious practices don't make someone right with God. He says it's a right relationship in one's heart that makes someone right with God. Anyone can go through the motions of outward observances, sing songs, learn Bible verses, observe ordinances, and follow rituals. And in so doing, it can be completely vain. And they can go home and and live in complete contradiction of what it really means to honor God and have a reality of a true experience with God in their life, and Paul understood this because he was the poster child for that, if you remember. So Paul had a great concern and a very a very keen pulse on this tendency because this was his life. Paul had to come to this place where he realized, no, I need to have faith, and I need to have a genuine experience with God and a relationship with God to be right before him. And as Paul was sort of challenging that religious, Keeping person who had a sense of false security in their observances, it's at that point that Paul anticipates, very wisely because he was one of them, he anticipates now in chapter 3 some of the arguments and the questioning that would come. As they would get defensive and then begin to have questions arise in their minds to begin to object. And that's what Paul starts to do in chapter 3 now. He he senses the first objection, chapter 3, verse 1, that would be in the the mind of a religious Jewish skeptic. That they would say, verse 1, well then what advantage then has a Jew? Or what is the profit then of even having circumcision? In other words, objection number one, Paul said he could sense that the religious Jew would say, look, well, well, if we're God's chosen nation and he gave us the priesthood and the sacrificial system and and we have all these observances that God has given to us to perform, and yet all those things don't make us right with God, and and you're telling us that we're still sinners just like all the Gentile, ungodly, pagan people that don't even do the very things that we do, then then what's the advantage then of even being a Jew? What's the advantage of having these things? Well, Paul's answer, verse 2, he says, much in every way. Chiefly, or primarily, he says, because... To them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. So Paul says in answer, there are actually many advantages to being a Jew. He says, again, Paul wants them to see, certainly, yes, I'm trying to drive home to you that a religious moral person is still a sinner, even though they're a religious moral person, that they're still a sinner like everyone else and they need forgiveness. But he says, by no means am I trying to say that there's no benefit or advantage to having been raised in the structure of the Jewish religious system and that somehow that had absolutely no value to it. For example, he says one of the highest benefits and advantages that the Jew had is the very fact, he says here, verse 2, that they had received the oracles of God. The word there is logos. It's a term speaking of the fact that they had received the written word of God, the scriptures. Paul says one of the most incredible advantages is that you were God's chosen people entrusted with the most important document in human history. God entrusted the Jewish people with the privilege of receiving the scriptures and having personal exposure and stewardship over and the responsibility to copy and preserve the very word of God itself. And that was an incredible privilege. That was an incredible advantage and responsibility. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and 8, Moses said, For what great nation is there that God has, has God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I have set before you today? Again, it was a tremendous advantage to have the word of God and because they were entrusted with the scriptures, Paul says there emphatically, look, much in every way, you have great advantage. I mean, consider by having the scriptures, they had direct revelation of God's person. They had a very clear description of who God was and what he was like. They were informed how the Lord was to be approached. They were informed how the Lord was to be worshipped and served. They had instruction regarding God's purposes and God's plans and what God required of them. Micah 6, 8 declares, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And beyond those very simple things, one of the chief things, of course, in having the scriptures that the Jew had as an advantage is they had all of the prophecies and predictions of the coming Savior, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They had received those things. So God gave them a great gift and privilege in, in a sense, that religious structure that they were exposed to and raised within. And can I say this by way of application? In the same way... Being raised in a Christian home, if you were privileged that or you're being privileged that as a young person, is an incredible advantage that you have. Sadly, our carnal mind wants to twist that around or people want to say critical things to spin that the other direction. Oh, I feel so bad for you. All these rules and restrictions and convictions and, all. and and somehow there's this perception that that's a, that's a disadvantage. No, look, let me tell you the truth. That is a great advantage. That's an incredible advantage. God help us when we look at that and devalue the fact that that's an incredible advantage. And here's the trap. Don't ignore the fact that that's an advantage and blow it off and disregard it. You have an incredible advantage and privilege that you know the truth. And you have an opportunity to respond to it and to spare yourself some of the battle scars and the foolish, regretful decisions that others who never hear the word of God or the gospel message till later in life Uh, in a sense you know violate many of things that they would not have if they had the advantage of the structure and the loving guidance in the sense that comes like a jew being raised in a similar capacity there so so paul says look there's great great advantage and then he anticipates a second objection from the religious skeptic look as we go on in verse three he says for what if some did not believe Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God, therefore, with no effect? Again, Paul answers, certainly not. So Paul anticipates the next objection of the religious skeptic that others would object. Well, wait a minute. What about for all of these Jews who heard the truths of God and then ultimately they heard the gospel message, but they simply chose not to believe it? In other words, they disregarded what it said, as many of the Jews did. They chose to reject god's word in the days of the old testament as well as even in the new testament they chose to reject jesus christ paul sends the next objection be well wait a minute doesn't their unbelief doesn't their unfaithfulness basically kind of just ruin god's plan if god had a plan it was through the jews and all those things and they didn't believe anyway well doesn't their unbelief kind of dismantle the effectiveness of God's endeavor to reach out in the way that he did. Paul's answer again, verse 4, he says, certainly not. He says, in fact, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may be overcome when you, God, are judged. In other words, yes, Paul's saying the Jews failed. True, they did. They rejected God's word. They served other gods throughout history. They rejected their own prophets. You can see historically as you read the Old Testament. Ultimately, they rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he was sent to them. They didn't recognize him and rejected him and allowed him to be crucified. Yet, despite all that human failure, Paul says, despite that unbelief and and that, that unfaithfulness, God still faithfully accomplished his plans, and ultimately still worked even through their, faithful, or their unfaithfulness to faithfully fulfill his plan with Jesus Christ. And I think the lesson that the God wants us to see here is very simply this. Is that human failure never cancels out the faithfulness of God to still fulfill his plans. And, and, and in the same way the Jews failed what God intended for them. That didn't frustrate and foil and nullify God's plan. God's plan still faithfully came to pass and God was able to accomplish what God wanted to, be able to accomplish still. And I think it's a great reminder for us that human failure can never cancel out the faithfulness of God and his ultimate plans. Sometimes we think that, oh, I failed, so therefore there's going to have to be an, ulti- you know, an, an ulterior plan now. And so I, I've missed it. Listen, God is going to do what God is going to do. He's sovereign and he's faithful. And, and he may need to take us on a little different route because of our stumblings or bumblings. I understand that, but God's pretty creative. And don't think at the end of the day, somehow God had all his eggs, as he didn't have all his eggs in the basket of one group in history, that he's got all his eggs. in. Well, just since this happened or that failed or this went wrong in this particular person's life or a church, well, everything's just gonna fail now. Not from God's perspective. God is more than able. That's why Paul says here, look, let God be true. And let every man become a liar. He says, let God be true, let God be proved right, and every man a liar, every man be proved wrong and incorrect. And then he quotes here in verse 4, Psalm 51, which was when David, remember, who had sinned and failed morally and spiritually, was confronted by his uh, uh, prophet Nathan regarding his sin. And remember at first, Nathan, Nathan, as he confronted David, David did not want to receive guilt for what he had done. He was trying to ignore it for almost a year in his life, and then eventually as he's confronted and he's broken down regarding his own personal guilt and responsibility, which he'd been trying to avoid what he had done wrong, then David comes to the place where he accepts his guilt, he owns up to his sin, and he comes to this realization where in essence he says as he's confessing his sin in Psalm 51, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm wrong, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in the sight. And as Psalm 51, as David's acknowledging his sin, he comes to this admittance in a spiritual reality of, you know what, Lord, my failure certainly is something that I didn't want to embrace, but the truth of the matter is you are the one that is right. I'm the one that's wrong. And he says within Psalm 51, what we have quoted here, Lord, may you be justified in your words about me and my guilt and error, and may you overcome whenever people try and wrongly judge you as being unfair or incorrect for confronting us of our guilt and humanity. The idea being reinforced, again, of what he just said, let God be the one who's always true, and let every man always be proved a liar. And as I think of that phrase, let God be the one who's true and every man be a liar, there's an incredible spiritual principle to remind us in our own lives that it is not what man feels and thinks that is the truth. It's what God says that is true. It is not what man thinks or feels within himself that is necessarily the truth, but what God says. That is always what the truth is and what proves to be the truth. And I say that for this reason, because often we experience thoughts and feelings. I do anyway. (laughs) Maybe you're not as distorted as I am. But often I experience thoughts and feelings within my life that are not simply true. They're not accurate. And I may feel very strongly about them. I may have a very strong conviction in my mind. but, But what I think and what I feel is wrong. But what God says in his word is what's true. There are times when people may not think they're a sinner. They may not feel like they're guilty before God. That's not true. The Bible says you are a sinner. There are times as a Christian where after you accept Jesus Christ and maybe you fail and you're you're struggling with condemnation still and the devil's bombarding you because of something you did in your past or some way you failed recently. Oh, you've confessed and you've asked the Lord to forgive you, but you're still struggling with guilt and you may not think that somehow you're cleansed of that. Listen, let God be true. If God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If God says you're cleansed, you're cleansed. We need to let God be true and let every man be proved a liar. I think the thing we have to remember is this. One of my favorite Bible verses in the book of Galatians, it's six words. It says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? I would encourage you to memorize that verse that's one of my favorite six word phrases in the entire bible because i struggle with wrong thoughts and feelings i talk to people all the time who justify rationalize wrestle with wrong thoughts and feelings and the bottom line has to come listen i understand what you think i hear what you're feeling nevertheless what does the scripture say in regards to that because that's what's true and our thoughts and feelings often are making us a liar and we must embrace the truth of God. Instead, what he says is right. Paul goes on, verse 5 and 6, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates, he says, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Who inflicts wrath? Again, he says, I'm, I'm using human logic here. Certainly not, he answers. For then how will God judge the world. Objection number three is Paul anticipates then the religious skeptic who's feeling defensive and said, wait a minute. If our unrighteousness and sinfulness, which God apparently knew about in advance, just proves that God's righteous in his estimation and accurate of what he said of all humanity, then is that really fair that God would have wrath towards us because of our sin? If he knew we were going to sin anyway, if he knew that we were going to fail and do wrong anyway, in fact he says he says he can picture the objection. Perhaps isn't God even unjust to punish us? To inflict wrath and punish us for our sin if he knew we'd commit it anyway? And, and Paul says here in response to that, come on, he says, he says, I'm using foolish human reasoning here, but he says, I can picture the logic. He says, I'm, you're using manipulative logic to try and do what? Skirt responsibility again. To try and somehow twist and distort things to find a loophole for your guilt. Certainly God is a righteous judge. And he says, if it were unfair or unrighteous for God to judge the world, he says, then how would he ever be considered a righteous judge? If somebody is clearly guilty and the judge says, well, yeah, I know you're guilty, but, but I'm feeling kind of chipper today. So, you know, I mean, the last I just sentenced them to life in prison. But you know what? Hey, you take a break. That wouldn't be a good judge. That would be an unrighteous judge. So the very fact that all of humanity must... Without partiality, bear guilt before a holy God whose standard we all fall short of. He says that is critical because if God gave exceptions, he wouldn't be an unrighteous judge. uh, Or he wouldn't be a righteous judge, he'd become an unrighteous judge. Now he goes on, verse 7, and the language is a little complicated. I'll try and grab the point out of it. He says, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory then why am I also still judged as a sinner? He almost senses the sarcasm in the mind of the religious skeptic. And why not say, well, just let us do evil, that that good may come. And Paul says, it seems that some are slanderously saying, this is what we're trying to say here. And Paul says, whoever says that, you know, he's rather direct, he says, you know, your condemnation is just. If you're saying that, he says, then, then very just is your condemnation. The picture here is kind of a very defensive it's almost kind of a smart aleck type tone at this point where with sarcasm in their attitude that he can picture someone objecting probably as he once did in essence kind of saying to this whole reasoning look if god knew we were going to fail and by sinning and rejecting him and then ultimately rejecting jesus yet in the end that served god's purposes and it actually still glorified him then why should we be judged as sinners, I mean, in essence, as sinners, didn't we kind of help God out? I mean, our sin actually benefited God, didn't it? I mean, it kind of helped out His plan. He said that we would sin and that He would send a Savior. So, wait a minute here. It seems my sin actually benefits God in the overall scheme of things. And if my lies have brought greater glory to prove how true he is and if my sin somehow just gives god a greater opportunity to show the glory of his incredible forgiveness and that he's a righteous judge uh, he says why should we then be somehow punished for that or judged because of it he says there in verse eight in fact some would say you know what shouldn't we just do evil because maybe if we just do more evil, then even more good will come. It'll be even be more clear how righteous and how loving and forgiving God is. After all, if God is honored in judging my sin, then ain't I doing him a favor by sinning and proving who I really am? And instead of judging me, he should actually let me sin. So he could be glorified all the more as a righteous and at the same time a loving God. In Paul's rebuke, the end of verse 8, there you see Paul says, you know what, if you're saying that, your condemnation is just. In other words, he's saying if your heart is that distorted and that hard and you have that kind of flippant attitude as an unsaved person, he says, then properly you deserve to be judged and to be condemned. Now, as I look at this kind of objection and reasoning that's going on here and you think of the distortion of the human logic Paul understood, I have to say this. Isn't it amazing? I mean, absolutely amazing how truly, 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 distorted our human logic can become when we want to escape guilt for what we know that we've done wrong or continue without excuse to do something that we know that is wrong on a continual basis isn't it amazing how human logic and reasoning can become so twisted in our thinking to the point where we actually can somehow almost want to blame god for the wrong things that we're doing And it is amazing how when we don't want to face our own guilt, how we can get a flippant, almost irreverent attitude whereby we want to justify and rationalize and we're even willing to somehow in our reasoning blame God. Well, the reason I'm like this is because God let this happen. And if God didn't let that happen, so so it's ultimately God's fault that I'm misbehaving. Or, well, the reason why things are like this is, well, this is just the way God made me. Well, well, and, and it's amazing how we can become so irreverent towards God. And our thinking can become so distorted in that way, in such a brazen manner, where there's almost this arrogancy and this flippancy before a holy God or a creator that we're going to stand before. Paul says, verse 9, what then, Are we better than they? He says, not at all. He says, are are we trying to say that we're better one party over another? Paul's point is, look, if you're becoming defenseless, just because you are a religiously observant person, and yet I've still told you that you're sinful, Paul says, if that's offending you and you're getting defensive, he says, you're missing the whole point here. He says, you're missing the whole point. It's not we're trying to say that one group is better than another. He says, not at all. Look what he says in verse 9. We have previously already charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin. Paul says, listen, from the courtroom and heaven's judicial bents of what is righteous as a judge evaluating those in front of them. The bottom line in the courtroom of God, he says, is the same judicial charge is filed against everybody. Guilty. Guilty is charged. He says, we previously already told everyone what the charge is. He says, we are, notice the term there, verse 9, all under sin. In other words, whether moral or immoral, whether irreligious or very religious. What kind of sin and the amounts of sin in a person's life really don't really matter at this point. If we break the law at any one point, that makes us what a lawbreaker. So you, one person, say, "Hey, you, but you break seven laws, and and you break the law seven times a day. I've only broken the law one time. Guess what? From a judicial righteous standpoint." In essence, we're still the same. We are both lawbreakers because the standard is God's standard. It's not a human standard. We have to remember the standard that we are measured by is not our own standard. That's the great error. It's God's standard and everybody falls short of God's standard. Granted, sin and the amounts of sin and the types of sin consequentially may have a greater impact on our lives. Certainly, we understand that. But but the bottom line reality is we are all guilty of being lawbreakers at some point during life. So the same charge of being guilty puts us all under sin. And the idea there of being under sin, we are under the power of sin, which rules over our lives, the Bible says, and, and in a sense keeps us. You know, submitted to sin's power until we're set free and we're also under the penalty of sin the punishment of sin that we all justly deserve that we're guilty of committing of and because we're under the power of sin and the penalty of sin that should communicate something that we need to be set free We need to be set free and the only way we can be set free we're going to see in the next chapters is by Jesus Christ coming and liberating us. Now verses 10 through 18, you notice as we read it together as it is written, Paul here puts together a string of scripture verses. And it's almost like now he puts humanity on the stand and he's going to cross examine before his closing arguments to validate their guilt so the prosecution can rest. And here in verses 10 to 18, he strings together, it's like these are the exhibits of evidence. Is that the right word, right? Yeah, exhibit A, isn't right? All right? In the courtroom, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit... Well, Paul says, look, I'm going to bring forth all the exhibits of evidence now. And what he uses to prove the guilt is a string of scriptures he quotes from multiple places all throughout the Old Testament. He quotes here from Psalm 5 and Psalm 10, Psalm 14 and 36 and 53. He quotes from Psalm 140 and then Isaiah 59 and from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And can I just say this before we we, we look at it together? I looked at that and I went, wow, talk about a grasp on Scripture. He didn't just pull one passage. He pulls phrases and and quotations from all over. You want to talk about a man who was familiar with the word of God and whose reasoning in everything he said had a biblical basis. Again, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Paul says, look, I'm trying to say that you're a sinner. I'm trying to say we're all guilty. But he said, I'm not just saying this because I want to make you feel bad. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And he says, and I have a biblical basis for why I believe and, and, and think the way that I think. And I think it's a great example for all of us. So basically, he says, as it is written. And then in verse 10 to 12, he will speak like a well-informed prosecuting attorney. In verses uh, 13 and 14, he speaks like a divine doctor examining a patient's condition And then as we read through verses 15 to 18, we'll see he's like an accurate historian kind of quoting facts here for us. So let's just read through it and just let it speak for what it says. First of all, in verse 10 through 18, as he's kind of bringing his closing arguments now, Paul speaks like a well-informed prosecuting attorney. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. And there is none who does good. No, not one. You notice the emphasis there, or that phrase three times, there is none. None, nobody. He says there's not one person, first of all, who is righteous. In other words, there's not one person on this planet who always does what is right never makes mistakes and never fails. There's not one person, not one person who's ever been perfectly right and never made a mistake. He says there's no one who understands and there's not one who ever honestly seeks after God, which makes me wonder what the purpose of seeker services are. Kind of counter-biblical to have a seeker service. The Bible says no one seeks God. It's kind of a, a distorted idea there, really. He says, there's not one person who really understands and seeks after God. In other words, our natural condition, nobody begins life rightly related to God. Nobody begins life with a natural inclination to go seek after God. We begin life depraved, sinful, having turned away from God. That's the that's natural condition of all of humanity. He says in our verse here, verse 11, he says, or verse 12, they've all, that includes everybody, They've all turned aside. In other words, all people take the wrong path naturally. We turn away from what is right. Why? Because we're drawn to sin. He goes on to say, we've all become unprofitable. That word there indicates rotten fruit or like sour milk. It's a picture there. He says, look, like we corrupt our lives by pursuing then those wrong paths outside of God's will. He then says, verse 12, and there is none who does good. No, not one. Do you see that again? There is none who does good. Contrary to humanity's high view of self, God says, listen, let me break it to you honestly. He says, there's no such thing as a good person. He says, really, everybody is a bad person. And more than that, a really bad person. That's the point he's trying to drive home here. The initial exhibits of evidence prove, right in the first three verses, everyone's a failure. Everyone starts life separated from God and rebellious, and then we ruin our lives with wrong decisions that we make on occasion. And despite how good we may feel about ourselves, we are bad people in a really bad condition because of our sins and shortcomings. Verse 13 and 14 then he speaks like a divine doctor examining his patient's condition. He says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps, which was like a, a serpent, is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So here he it's almost like a doctor doing what do they do? You go to the physician and the doctor says, can you stick out your tongue and say what? Ah, right, because he wants to look in, and that gives an indication of your condition many a times to them. And it's almost as if God now, like a divine doctor examining his patient and humanity, he looks into man's throat to look further down into his life, and look what he sees here in verse 13 and 14. He sees the stench of death, he sees rottenness within, and dishonesty, and deceit. He sees poisonous venom and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. They curse at one another. You know, they're bitter and angry towards God. There's animosity and hatred among people and bitterness and anger towards God. The idea is as man opens his mouth, God says he just proves his guilt. He just reveals it all the more. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Jesus said, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, from within. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, and adulteries, and fornications, and murders, and thefts, and covetousness, wickedness, and deceit, lewdness, and an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And Jesus said all these evil things come from within a man. Again, the Bible wants us to see the heart is depraved. A human being's heart is sick, and it's the overflow in our words and our behavior that just reveals that all the more. As Paul concludes in verses 15 to 18, he then, in a sense, is acting as if he's a design, uh, uh, an accurate historian here, recording the facts of observing humanity. Notice verse 15, he says, first of all, they're their feet, humanity's feet, they're swift to shed blood. In other words, he says, all human history has showed what? That humanity is violent. And they're brutal. I mean, look at what's going on in our culture right now, you know, beheading children. And I mean, just the the brutality, the violence of humanity says men are swift to destroy one another. Their destruction, he says, and misery is what's in their ways. In other words, the ways of mankind are destructive and we bring misery into our own lives by the wrong and erroneous things that we do. He says, verse 17, and the way of peace... Humanity has never known. We may talk about peace. We have big conventions about peace. But he says experientially humanity knows nothing of peace. We're at not peace with one another. And he says "And, and all of human beings truthfully. They're not at peace within themselves. Isaiah the prophet said it this way. He said the wicked are like a troubled sea that cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace says my God. For the wicked. Humanity lives agitated within because they're not at peace with God. And until someone makes peace with God, God says, I will let you stay agitated within until you realize the battle you have to resolve first is internal. And it's because of our depraved condition that we wrestle within ourselves that then causes us to wrestle and struggle in our lives with others. He says, verse 18, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, the summation, humanity lives with no reverence for God. We have no respect for God's authority as our creator, as our judge. It pictures man in his arrogance and his selfish, sort of brazen, criminal heart attitude that carries itself out. The picture here is the depravity of man, that we are depraved and fallen. He says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says, notice, to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And Paul says, the prosecution rests. It rests. He says the law of God, which we have, he says it simply serves as a standard, as we'll see next week, of the righteousness of God to just show that we miss the mark and that we fail. The law indicates to us to silence the offender of the law that you are guilty, whether you want to admit it or not. And it declares the the, the guilt that we experience. He says that all the world may be guilty before god that word guilty means to be liable to pay a penalty to god who is the judge and what is the penalty that we are liable to pay before the judge well jesus said it's being cast into the lake of fire where there is torment and eternal condemnation and damnation forever and see the bible wants us to realize this reality you must honestly i must honestly face our guilt in order to become free of our guilt. You have to confront, I have to confront the reality of my guilt to become free of my guilt. It's an essential critical part. It's the first part in the process. Because if you don't know how guilty you are, then you don't have a compelling desire to want to be free of your guilt and to be set free. And guilt is a powerful, powerful force and influence. But the wonderful thing is God's made a way for our guilt to be removed from our lives. And that is through Jesus Christ forgiving us and setting us free. The removal of guilt as far as judgment eternally and the release of our guilt experientially in our hearts and in our minds that we carry around when we make the mistakes that we do. Jesus took our guilt upon himself when he died on the cross so that the punishment we deserve, that guilt, can be taken away from us. And then the guilt that we experience in our hearts and minds because of our mistakes, Jesus says, I want to take that away too. And it's when you receive my forgiveness that that guilt can be released from you. And communion is the way in which we, as Christians... Paul's to remember that reality. That though I am guilty, that Jesus Christ took my guilt and I don't have to live guilty because Jesus has set me free. Jesus has liberated me. I love what this song says. I'll conclude with this. It says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I am accepted. You were condemned. I am alive and well and your spirit is within me because you died and rose again.